Well, thanks, thanks for that, Stefani. Um, if you've not met Stefani, it's because she moved here from Brisbane a couple of weeks ago, uh, and she's engaged to Kelvin. Uh, but that's who Stefani is. Uh, but thanks for reading a pretty hefty Bible reading for us tonight. And that's an understatement. Uh, what do you do with a Bible reading like that? What do you do with <laughs> this part of the Bible? Now, if you've arrived at church uh, in a good mood, uh, feeling chipper, you're having a nice Sunday afternoon, you've just been a crescent head, uh, this, this could be a bit of a downer as you sit in this passage. Um, and so it could be that you might be feeling a little bit of, if you've understood what was just said in the Scriptures, you might be feeling a little bit of emotional whiplash, maybe. Uh, but on the flip side, there are genuinely people who gather with us every week at church who actually come carrying all sorts of burdens and heaviness. And sometimes for them, I wonder, I wonder if church can feel like a little bit of emotional whiplash as well. As like, isn't it great to be together? Happy, happy, happy Christian donuts in the foyer. And maybe you're feeling pretty heavy. And so if that's your normal experience of church, well, tonight it's everyone else's turn to be on the receiving end of a bit of emotional whiplash because this passage is heavy. Now, it's important to say, um, uh, more than any other week, I think, in the book of Job, that this book, this passage tonight, is going to confront us with some powerful and sometimes dark emotions, as we've already read. Now, if you're someone who battles with depression or even suicidal thoughts, I want to flag a few things for you. Uh, This passage, God willing, I hope will actually be especially helpful for you to hear tonight and important for you to hear. And so I pray that it's helpful for you as you journey in tricky mental health stuff. And I wonder if you're feeling a bit anxious to hear that Bible reading. I want to try and encourage you. I hope it's going to be helpful. Uh, But although helpful, I want to own, it it is confronting. And so I do want to say, um, if you just feel like you need a little bit of space tonight, if you just want to find some space out in the foyer or something like that later on, or in the sermon, you're free to do so. Everyone will think you're going for a quick wee, but just head out in the foyer and and find some space if you need. Uh, But I'll also flag as well, at the end of tonight, there'll be a handful of um, people who uh, lead us from among church here who'll be kind of down the front and making themselves available. So come talk to one of us tonight if you'd like to and if you'd need to. Uh, But we can't just ignore the negative, can we? We can't just shut it out. We can't just wallpaper over it and pretend it's not there uh, as if everything in life is peachy. Uh, Deep emotion confronts us on the pages of this reading that we just had. It's a part of God's good word to us. We can't just ignore it. And even if we wanted to just ignore this part of the Bible, we can't ignore, ignore it in life either, can we? Because the fact is, this stuff is, well, it's part of reality. 20% 20% of 16 to 35-year-olds uh, experience high levels of psychological distress. That's self-reported. 10% of Australians are diagnosed with clinical depression. 14% with anxiety. And the statistics on suicide, that are hard to come by and nail down. But the fact is, it's a big problem. I know for a bunch of you here at EV Night as well. And so whether you experience any of those things or not... <laughs> We do know as well that suffering will also come and find all of us at some point. Now, Job's state here in chapter 3, his mental state, isn't the result of necessarily a long-term battle with depression or something like that. This is his reaction to the gut-wrenching events of chapters 1 and 2, which we saw last week. But the question that confronts us in the pages of this passage tonight is this. As Christians... How are we meant to engage with the negative and the tragic? Particularly as Christians, how, we, how should we feel? 
Is it wrong for us as Christians, having everything in Christ, every spiritual blessing, all that we need from him, to visit dark places such as this here in chapter 3? For Christians, what's the deal with depression and suicide and negative feelings? Is that sinful? Some of the stuff we need to think about. Should Christians ever feel like this? We've got Jesus, so we have everything, right? So, should this be us? What's the place of dark feelings and the expression of them in the Christian life? There's a lot we've got to deal with as we wrestle in these pages tonight. And so I'm going to pray and we'll dig into the passage together. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we want to ask of you of your help tonight. Lord, sustain us as we look at really tricky but important stuff. Lord, um, help us to focus, help us to hear the good news in your word tonight and give us wisdom as we navigate um, a really confronting part of your word. But Father, we trust you. We know that your word to us is good No page of this is without reason and not for our benefit. And so, Lord, please do your will among us tonight by your Spirit and by your mighty Word. Amen. Okay, so this passage that was just read, we didn't actually read all of chapter 3, but we'll look at all of it together. But this passage is what's called a lament. It's a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. It's the unedited cry of a broken heart. I don't know if you caught that, the unedited cry of a broken heart. You know, in, if you're in work or uni or something like that, you get an email or a text and it really gets under your skin, really rubs you the wrong way and you're angry and you're fired up and then the first thing you think to, like you start, you get your phone out and your thumbs are working and you start getting ready to shoot, shoot off and fire back just straight from the heart, give, them, give it to them and then you realise, oh, if I send that I'll get fired or I won't have friends and so you edit it and you make it easier to hear for the other person. It's the first draft, how you really feel. A lament is the unedited cry, not insulting God, but a cry out to God that's uncensored. It's just what you feel, what's going on. Now, here's the question for us. Is talking to God like that allowed? (laughs) Is that Christian? How do we need to be careful? Do we need to restrain ourselves in some way? How do Christians lament? like Job does here in this passage. Now, the way we're going to come at this is we're going to look at, just basically jump into chapter 3 and get our heads around it, understand chapter 3, step 1, and then we're going to look at all the different ways the implications come out of the passage together. And so let's have a look, grab your Bibles open in front of you and we'll look at the passage together. Our reading picked up with Job, chapter 2, all alone in his sorrow. 2 verse 11, his three friends turn up to console him and 2 verse 12, what they see horrifies them. Have a look. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him and they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads, which is what you do when you're mourning for someone or something. And then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. These friends turn up and they're physically with Job. They join him, they sit down with him, but at the same time, He's on an island all of his own in his suffering. He's out there isolated in a world that they can't possibly understand and he's kind of like this horrible spectacle as they look at him. They don't know what it's like to walk walk in Job's shoes and as we read on we'll see they have absolutely no clue as you hear what the friends say. But they're with him and then 3 verse 1, 
Job breaks the silence. And the author tells us what he's going to do. After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And guess what? That's what the next bunch of verses are. That's exactly what he does. He curses the day that he was born. Look at verse 2. He says, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. Verse 6, That night may thick darkness seize it, may it not be included among the days of the year, may it not be entered into the months. Get rid of it. Delete it from the calendar. Get rid of it. Curses the day of his birth. He wants it stricken from the record, erased from history, because if he hadn't been born, what's the implication? Well, then he wouldn't be suffering all this now. Verses ten to uh, 7 to 10, the gloominess continues. It's as if he's like, fine, if I had to be born, cool, I'll allow it. Why couldn't I have not been conceived then? How about we get rid of that? Look at verse 7. He says, may that night be barren, may no shout of joy be heard in it. Please, Lord, may I not have been conceived at all. Uh, down to verse 10, uh, may, verse 9, May its morning star be dark, may it wait for daylight in vain, not see the first rays of dawn, for it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. He's saying, if I had to be born, well, maybe what if I was never conceived in the first place? And then he goes on, he says, well, I had to be born, I had to be conceived, Fine. Why did I have to keep living afterwards is basically the next bit. Verse 11, he says, Why didn't I perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? Why did I have to live on after birth? Very heavy. Verse 16, Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? So far, Job has cursed... His conception, his birth, and the fact that he's continued to live after that. He's actually taking pretty much one of the most positive things you could think of, the conception, birth, and life of a small child, and he's inverting it and saying, erase it, get rid of it, I don't want it. Think about that. Of all the things that you could kind of curse and say, this is terrible, get rid of it, the conception, birth, and of a child, of a healthy, thriving child, that's a positive thing. That's a good thing. It's a gift. It's a blessing from God. And that's why, as we heard Luke and Emma talk about, the absence of that good gift from God is actually really painful. It's so stinging. Here Job is inverting what is good and asking it to be erased. What should be a cause for celebration for Job is now the cause of his angst. Do you see how dark a place he is in as he says these words? Now, you might not have spotted this, but I think in verses 1 to 5, it's actually almost like an inversion, a reversal of Genesis 1, I think is what some of the language is saying there. In Genesis 1, it's the good account of a good God who says, you know, let there be light, may darkness, uh, may day, may night turn to day, may blackness and emptiness be filled. God does all these things in God's act of care and engagement with his creation. But for Job, verses 1 to 5, he's reversing all of that. He's saying, may day turn to night. May there be no light on it, no no care for this God on his creation. May that which is good be reversed, because he just wants out. Ultimately, his point is, I wish I was dead. He wants to be in the grave, which is heavy. 
The reason he wants to be in the grave, as we read on verse 17, is that that's where all the pain and the trouble stops. Have a look at verse 17. He's talking about the grave. He says, There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives, Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout, and the small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. He's saying, in the grave, it all goes away. It's pretty simple. It's not hard to understand. He wishes he was dead, so that the pain would stop. Now, we'll come back to this in a second, but as a quick aside, it might be that as you read that section about the grave there and what Job says, uh, it might raise a question for you. This is a pretty positive picture of the grave for Job, isn't it? I wonder, I wonder if you thought, what does Job think happens after we die? Does Job, a follower of God, does he believe in the afterlife? Now, as New Testament Christians, we do. We know we're very clear on what the future holds and there's great blessings for those who are saved by Jesus, but there's great things to fear for those who reject Jesus. We expect a resurrection. But what about Job? A few quick things as an aside. It's clear that this point here in Job is Job's most negative picture of life and his most positive picture of the grave. But even for Job, as you read on, you'll see that he knows that the grave is ultimately not a good thing. Chapter 17, verse 14, he talks about the grave as a, the grave as a place of corruption and rotting and the worm and hopelessness. So the, gro- the grave is not all good, even Job knows that. But as you read on in chapter 19, 25, 26, there's little hints that you get that Job knows that there's something more coming after this life. He expects to see God even after he dies, it seems. So Job certainly didn't know everything that we know from the Bible as New Testament Christians. He didn't know about the resurrection the way we do. We, ha- we know so much more so clearly through Jesus, but there's little hints that he knew there was more. But what's the big point back here in chapter 3? Job wishes he was dead, saying, I want to be in the grave because he wants his suffering to be over. Now, the last few verses of chapter 3, he asks questions like, verse 23, why is life given to a person by God? Why do they need to continue to suffer? Why does God keep giving them life? And then he finishes with this in verse 25. What I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. Have you ever seen anything like this on the pages of Scripture? (laughs) What a chapter of the Bible. I mean, I've listened to some screamo songs in the early 2000s that sounded a little bit like this, but the Bible? It's shocking, it's unexpected. This is Job's lament. Now, what do we do with it? Is this any help to us at all? Is it just a giant downer? What are you meant to do with this? Well, friends, I want to say there's a handful of really big, significant and helpful things that we need to see in this passage. And so let's reflect on these together and draw them out. The first thing is this. Feelings are meant to be felt. Now, that might sound like the dumbest sentence you've ever heard, but I'll assure you it's really important. (coughs) Feelings are meant to be felt. See, at a very human level, that's actually the normal response to grief. (laughs) You can't short-circuit the process by, you know, just saying, oh, well, some bad stuff happened and I'll just pretend it didn't. 
the feelings that well up in us are meant to be experienced. They're meant to be felt. See, Job's lost everything. Remember chapters 1 and 2? He's not just having a whinge. Um, He's lost his family. He's lost his livelihood. He's lost his health. It's all been stripped away. And Job doesn't just, cha- like, kind of, after chapter 1 and 2, go, wow, that was, that was quite a surprise, really. Oh, well, I better find a good doctor to deal with these worms in my skin that I've now got. Instead, this is the beginning of a journey for Job. It's a journey that involves, in part, feeling his feelings. My iPad's just... Thank you. Yeah. And turns out, feeling his feelings is pretty messy for him as well. Chapter 3... Surprise, it's pretty messy. And in fact, that's, why, that's one of the reasons why chapter 3 is so important. Chapters 1 and 2, I don't know if you felt this last week when we read it, but they can feel quite neat, can't they? In his faithfulness, it can feel a little bit like Job is coming across as just bulletproof, unaffected by what, he, what has happened to him. But here in chapter 3, we get to see the faithful man Job full volume experiencing his feelings. See, there's a reason I brought this book up here, but the experience of grief and pain is a little bit like being handed a giant book. A thing's happened and now there's a thing you're going to have to work your way through. Now, this is actually Lord of the Rings, not anything else, but the fact is you've been handed this thing and so now there's a whole bunch of processing and feeling that you're going to need to go through to finish the book and deal with what's happened. And you can't ignore it and just play on as if you've not been handed this book. Instead, you've got to experience it. You've got to go on the journey of feeling the feelings and and working your way through it. Now, some people like to, after being handed a book like this, of emotional things to work through, like to pretend that they've already read the book or that they don't need to for some reason. So like, ouch, something happened, that was no good. Uh, But I just won't think about it anymore. And we want to put down the book and pretend that you don't have to do that But that's not feeling our feelings. That's ignoring a thing that's happened to us and the feelings that come with it. Now, sometimes actually for a season, psychologically, that's a necessary thing. Sometimes people can't face all the things they need to feel right away and our bodies can block that out and we can suppress that for a while and that's a coping mechanism that's helpful. But eventually, this book of stuff that you've got to work through when something tragic comes into your life it'll come and find you. Your feelings will find you out and you've got to deal with it. Now, some people get handed a book like this and what can happen is you start to feel your feelings and you get to chapter three or whatever and then you just get stuck there and you stay in that same place and you're never able to move on from this part of the journey. And that's why things like psychologists and counsellors and so on can be helpful. They'll help you kind of process the rest of the book and actually finish it off and get rid of it. But here's the thing with feelings. They need to be felt. In fact, I want to say this, feelings are an... A psychologist once said this to me, right? This is not the Bible, but anyway. Feelings are an infallible guide to the fact that there is something going on inside of you. They're an infallible guide to the fact that there's something going on inside of you. You can't just ignore them. They're there teaching you something. They're an infallible guide to the fact that something is going on. And so, friends, in life... If terrible stuff happens, well, you need to recognise that there's a journey and there's grieving to be done and you'll need to feel your feelings as part of that. You can't just say, oh, terrible thing, it's it's awful, but I have Jesus and the hope of heaven, so this will not affect me. 
move on. It's fine, I've done it, I've handed it. No, you can't, you can't do that. It's a thing that you need to process through. But, (laughs) my goodness, Jesus and the hope of heaven are so important on a journey like that. Jesus makes a world of difference when you go through the journey of processing what's gone on. And there's a quick aside to that as we keep working through. If you've got friends who are going through something terrible, something terrible's happened in their lives, well, Job's friends, spoiler, they're lousy, they're terrible friends, but they get one thing right. They're a good example in one way. Are you ready for this? Chapter 2, verse 13, they showed up. They showed up and they sat with him in his pain. And so, brothers and sisters, would we be able to do that for one another? When, stuff is, when stuff's going wrong for people, your friends around you, usually they're going to be slow to tell you what's going on and slow to ask for help. And so show up. Just show up. And they'll tell you if you need to go away. You can like, listen to them. If they say go away, definitely go away. But usually they won't. They'll be glad you did. And, you, and by the way, when you do that, you don't need to start by off the bat giving them a sermon on Romans 8.28 and telling them whatever. Now, you want to encourage them with the Scriptures, but you don't need to lead with that. Show up and be there. And over time, see how you can encourage. All right, step one, we've seen that feelings are meant to be felt. This is the model that's in front of us with Job. Here's the second huge thing that builds on the first. True believers can experience and express deep darkness. So I want you to notice back in our passage here, what Job does do and what he doesn't do. So we saw earlier as we looked through, he curses the day of his conception, the day of his birth, the the fact that his life is dragging on, but here's what he doesn't do. He never sins by cursing God. I don't know if that stood out for you. He never turns against God and accuses God of doing wrong. Now, as we read on in Job, I reckon, I reckon he does start to drift into the space where he's getting his circumstances wrong. He doesn't see everything perfectly, but he doesn't get God wrong. He doesn't accuse God of wrong. The whole drama of the book, in fact, come back to chapter 2, have a look in chapter 2 here. Job's in this pitiful state, he's lost everything, he's sitting in the ruins of his life, scraping at his wounds with a piece of pottery, and his wife is egging him on. Chapter 2, verse 9, his wife said, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. This is a moment of tension. You're meant to be going, what is Job going to do? He has, humanly speaking, every reason just to give up. He's been pushed to the absolute edge. Is he going to turn from God? Verse 10, he says, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, God, Job, did not sin in what he said. He doesn't sin in what he said. And then we lob into chapter 3, and, he, and he's saying some negative stuff in chapter 3. He curses a lot of things, the, the day of his birth, the, his conception, his life itself, everything in between, but he does not curse God. And that's meant to stand out for us. And here's what I think this teaches us. Job goes to a really dark place here in chapter 3. But as he does this, I don't think he's sinning. His perspective on life might be quite negative and twisted and 
hopeless, but he's not sinning as he goes there. And so, friends, real believers, real Christians can experience and even express great darkness. It's not nice, it's not a nice thing to go through, but it's not wrong. Now, that darkness can come into our life in a bunch of ways, can't it? It can come through really painful circumstances, similar in some senses to Job, as you suffer things. Uh, Or it could be that you even find yourself in the position of having something like clinical depression. Medically, you're in a dark place. Stop and think about how liberating Job 3 is. Have you ever been in a dark place like this yourself, here in chapter 3? You find yourself alone and despairing and overwhelmed and then you remember, I'm a Christian. And you say to yourself, Christians shouldn't feel like this, should we? Awesome. There's one more thing to chuck on the pile of things to feel guilty and down about. Not so in the book of Job. As dark as this passage is, it's liberating. Freedom to experience and express great darkness freedom to lament like Job does and so brothers and sisters in your pain and grief when those times come for you own how you feel you're not sinning if you feel depressed or even perhaps if you wish that God would take your life those things can be destructive and harmful and especially if you're stuck there and not able to move forward especially if you're fixated on it and unable to journey through those feelings But it's not sinful. It's not sinful. Think about it like the symptoms of a heart attack, chest pain. Sinful because I've got chest pain from a heart attack? No. Really serious and worth dealing with? Yes, of course, it's very serious. But you don't need to carry around a bunch of guilt about it simply because of the presence of those feelings. Now, let's let's talk about some specific implications with this. Let's talk about depression for a second. I want to say depression is not sinful in and of itself. Sinful choices in life can take you to some pretty depressing places. You could ruin your marriage through sinful choices and find yourself really depressed, sure. Uh, And the context of depression is one where you could be tempted to sin in that space. So you feel depressed and down and in the dumps and so then you buy the lie of the devil and you think, oh, if I sin, I'll feel happier, that'll make me feel better and you give in, you won't feel better but you can be tempted to sin in that kind of a context. Depression can even affect your relationship with God. In the context of long-term depression, your affections and feelings toward everything is uh, twisted and bent and out of shape, including your affections for God. And so your affections and your joy in God can feel stunted and not normal. So it can affect that. So there's a bunch of ways where depression can intersect with our sin. But here's the big thing, depression is not sin. That's really important to get. Many Christians carry on a bunch of guilt about depression. We tell ourselves, I'm not allowed to feel this way. (laughs) A true Christian wouldn't feel like this. So we grab the sense of failure about that and we chuck it on top of the pile, on top of the burden of a bunch of things we feel guilty about. So with depression, the way you see things is so often distorted. 
uh, the, particularly the way people see themselves. So we say, I'm a bad friend, I'm a bad daughter, I'm a bad uni student, and now to make it worse, I'm a bad Christian because I've got depression. That's a lie. Depression is not good, it's terrible, but it's not unchristian. It's not a sin. And so, if you're someone who's going through depression, or if you think you might be, no one's worked that out with you, you don't need to be afraid of owning that spiritually. Now, if that is where you're at tonight, you probably do need some help if you're not getting help with that. It could be that you need help from your Christian brothers and sisters here who can keep pointing you to Jesus. It'll be helpful. You may need help from a doctor. You may need help from a psychologist. But all that's okay. (laughs) It's pretty common and it's not unchristian. So if you're here and you need help, maybe come and find one of us down the front and, and have a chat to us and we can point you in the direction of some help if you'd like to chat to us. Second big thing, and I'm, I'm nervous even to talk about this, but I'm going to talk for a second about suicide. This topic takes a great deal of care and clarity, but it's worth talking about. I think Job 3 makes it clear that it's possible for a believer to get, a true believer, to get to the darkest place of wishing that they were dead. And I think from what we hear of what, how Job conducts himself... That's not sinful. Job doesn't get rebuked by God for that. It's not sin to wish you were dead. It's terrible and bad and and dangerous and can lead people to do all sorts of things that they will regret. Um, But that thought itself is not sinful. Now, this is really important clarification, so listen up. Job wishes in these verses here that he was dead but he also has a really strong conviction that it is not his place to take his life. It's really important to spot. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 23. He says, Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? You see his complaint there? He's, he's, saying, to God, he's saying of God, Why does God keep giving me life? Why do you, I wish it was ended but God is the one who's giving it to him. God is the one who actually gets to decide who lives and who dies. And he's saying, so God, please, why won't you end it? He knows that God is the one who's in control of that. That's his right as God. And so, if someone commits suicide, is that sin? At a simple level, I think I want to say yes. I think that's what the Scriptures say. Uh, 1 Samuel 2 verse 6, the Lord brings death, the Lord makes alive, he brings down to the grave and he raises up. And so God is the one who rules over life and death. As his creatures, we don't get to decide that. But (laughs) it's important to say, I don't think there's anything particularly special, apart from how tragic and serious it is, humanly speaking, there's nothing special about suicide as a sin. There's a Catholic tradition uh, that talks about Suicide has been in this special category where if you commit suicide, then it disqualifies you from heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus says all sin can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus, even something as tragic and serious as suicide. So what about suicidal thoughts? We'll be finished with this in a second. Is that sinful? Well, if by suicidal thoughts we mean wishing that we were dead, wishing that God would end our life... I think Job 3 says that's not sinful. If we mean thinking about death, 
same thing. If by suicidal thoughts we mean fantasising about taking your life into your own hands, uh, then I think that could slide into the category of being a sinful desire to do what is not your right to do. Um, And so it gets complex, but it's possible. It could become something that's unhelpful, sinful. Um, But either way, I don't think what's helpful is fixating on the guilt around that. What matters is that as Christians, we form clear convictions about what we'll do if confronted by suicidal thoughts. And so very briefly, what, what should you do if you find yourself in this spot, as I know some of you have? Well, first of all, own what's going on for yourself, be clear about that, and be clear that you're not sinning just because you wished your life was over. You're not a failed Christian because you're there. Second, form and maintain strong convictions. Suicide is simply not an option for, you, for me. I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, it's never a good option for anyone, but as a Christian... I'm going to obey God. I'm not the one who gets to decide who lives and dies. That's for God alone. And his commands are good. (laughs) Your life is a good gift from God, no matter what your circumstances. Your life is a good gift from God, so remember that. And third, if you're having suicidal thoughts, friends, do get some help. (laughs) And I'm sorry if tonight raises a thing that you'd kind of pushed out of your mind, but it's helpful to think Christianly about these things. And so even tonight, if it's raised it for you and you need some help, reach out and get some help. Talk to someone who knows how to connect you with help and and, and get some help. You can do that by coming and chatting to one of us down the front tonight. You can call Lifeline, which is an anonymous phone number. Google it, give give them a ring. They're not Christians, but they're professionals who can help you. Get some help if this is the context that you're in. All right, we've seen some really big stuff tonight. We've seen that feelings are meant to be felt that true believers can experience and express deep darkness. Here's the third thing, and it's kind of the flip side of the second thing that we've just seen. Here it is. We need to be warned. (laughs) Experiencing and expressing deep darkness can lead us into sin. So remember the drama of chapter 2. Will Job curse God? What's he going to do? Is he going to do it? Is he going to turn his back on God? And instead, what we saw is that he was faithful. And so God gets the glory because of Job's faithfulness. And then here we are, chapter 3, seeing Job in the wrestling, in the darkness. But as he does that, he doesn't turn his back on God. And so here's where this intersects with our emotional life for a second. I said before that feelings are an infallible guide to the fact that something is happening inside of you, something's going on, so you need to acknowledge your feelings and process them and work it out. True, but our feelings are not an infallible guide to ultimate reality. They tell you that something's going on here, but that doesn't mean that they're correct in all that they assume. That is, we must not bow down to our emotions and treat them as ultimate. They're fallible and knocked around by all sorts of things. Ate too much pizza last night, through to you're having a bad week. <laughs> Our feelings are all over the place. And so we need an outside word to come and bring the truth to us. And that's what God does. He comes to us by his word and he speaks the truth. And that's the journey that Job is on here in chapter 3 as, he read, as you read through the rest of the book. He's feeling his feelings and expressing them and process, journeying, journeying through it, but he guards his view of God, he doesn't sin in what he says of God, and ultimately where Job takes us toward the end of the book is that God is going to show up and he's going to speak to Job and bring the truth of ultimate reality. 
And so as we go through deep darkness in life, perhaps even find ourselves feeling some of the things that Job says here, we need to be so careful to guard our view of who our good God is. Guard that relationship with him. Look after it. In our pain, don't turn away from our good God in our despair. Make it your goal to sail along with Job in the darkest valley. Praise be the name of the Lord. God hasn't stopped being good and he hasn't stopped being in control. And so don't let your suffering erode your convictions about the facts of who God is. Interestingly, Job so clearly does not have all the answers about what's happening and why it's happening, hey? We do, as the readers, chapters 1 and 2, we know what's going on behind the curtain, but Job doesn't have a clue. He has no logical clue as to how God could be good and in control of all this, and of course, this is what, he doesn't know what God is doing, but even in the absence of that insight, Job does not change his opinion of who his God is. Just because he didn't understand, he doesn't change who he says God is. And so, friends, don't don't jump to wrong conclusions about who your God is when you're in the midst of it. Cry out to Him, honestly, but don't turn away from Him, even when you can't understand what He's doing or why. And if you can, even take heart, take heart that in spite of knowing what He's doing, it brings Him great glory when you continue to trust Him. Now, here's the last thing for us to see tonight. Friends, deep darkness is real, as we've seen it on these pages, but it is not the whole story. I don't know if you saw this as we went through chapter 3. Did you see how short-sighted Job's view of reality has become? All he sees is his present, the pain and the anguish, and yeah, he can, I guess, talk about the past and the things that have already happened, the fact that I wish I wasn't born, all that... But the one thing he never talks about, the one thing he can't see, is the future. It's completely absent from his view of reality. He can only see the now, he can look back at the past, but he has no future. That's a common experience in deep darkness. Pain in the present, regret in the past, no hope for the future. But here's the question for us. Can we say more than Job? Can we say more than that? Should a Christian lament start and end with just Job 3? No. Chapter 3 is not the whole story for us. Though sometimes the darkness can cloud our view of the future, brothers and sisters, we have a future. In Christ it is secure. Chapter 3 will never be your lot forever. If you're in Christ, this is not the whole story. It can feel like you can't see where it's all headed, but the gospel is sure and secure. Your future is sure and secure. And so even if it seems like you can't see where it's headed, the gospel of the Lord Jesus roars out against this darkness. You do have a future. You do have a hope. Because 2,000 years ago, there was another blameless believer a perfect blameless believer, one who who suffered in a garden and in fact surrounded, as we read in Matthew 26, surrounded by three of his mates in a garden and Jesus cried out there and he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed until the point of death. 
Jesus knew suffering and darkness and he faced it alone. And on the cross, he cried out these words. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bring to mind all of Psalm 22. In Jesus, we've got the perfect model of despair and yet trust. God came and walked among us. He knew no sin, perfect, spotless, and he lamented the darkness in our world. And by dying and rising again, he did so much more than offer a model for how to suffer. He secured for us a future, an unshakable hope, a hope that stands out of the reach of whatever circumstances this life can bring. Whatever this life can throw at you, it cannot touch what is secure in Christ. Your future is secure. You have a future. It is secure. We have a wonderful hope. Whatever sees in your face, Jesus is steady. Praise God for that. Friends, we're going to take some time now as a church to put into practice the things we've talked about here in chapter 3. So we're going to do that in a couple of ways. First of all, we're going to take a moment to lament in prayer together. And then second, we're going to be comforted by remembering Jesus' death as we do communion together, the hope that he secured for us. So tonight, no matter what our individual circumstances that we're in as we've come here, we're going to join together with those who are in the midst of suffering. We're going to give voice to their pain by crying out to our great God together as a gathered church. Now Sophie's going to come up and she's going to lead us in prayer. And then we'll head to communion after that. Let's pray together. God, our Father in heaven, whose spirit in us really does let us cry out, Father. Be attentive to our cry at this moment. Hear the voice of your children and meet us in our pain. Father, why does it feel as though pain abounds? There's so much brokenness and grief in our lives and our world right now. Many of us wrestle with restless minds. Anxiety and depression plague our days and steal our rest at night. Some of us are worn down by the weight of sickness. We're frustrated by never-ending chronic pain. Our hearts ache with loneliness. We grieve broken relationships and unmet longings for love, for children, for those we've lost. The deep anguish and sorrow that infertility brings. The wounds of marriages that are difficult or ending. Damaged relationships with family and friends that bring hurt and perhaps guilt and sorrow. We ache for peace and restoration. In God, we lament the terrible enemy that death is, snatching away mums and dads, aunts and uncles, Friends, even children before their time. Lord, we've shed so many tears watching loved ones reject you or walk away from you. We fear eternally for these ones we love so dearly. And as we look around the world, we see your people persecuted for your name. Many cannot meet or speak freely about you. Some in prison, beaten and even killed. This, plus the horrors of extreme poverty, war and injustice, shocks us and grieves our hearts. When will you come and bring justice? Even in our own hearts, Lord, 
We groan under our own spiritual brokenness and sin. We're worn down from fighting, yet there is still so much we wish we were, but fail to be. Father, why are we and those we love stripped of that which you declare good? Why is silence so often your answer? Calm our minds, break our addictions, heal our bodies, answer our longings, come and bring justice, save those we love. Triune God, we trust your weeping with us as your son wept with Martha and Mary at the death of Lazarus. Triune God who loves us, we trust you do not abandon us in our pain. Lord, your word teaches us more than that you weep. We trust that you have guaranteed for us a world where there is no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. Thank you, Father. We long for that day without pain and with you. Father, let us not hide from our pain, but bring it plainly before you, but as ones not without hope. We ask, trusting that you are able to achieve these things with the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Amen. Well, not only can we cry out to God and know that He hears us and cares uh, in our suffering, we can remember, as, as, as Sophie prayed, that He's done something tangible in history about it. In Jesus' death and resurrection, He's defeated death and suffering and sin. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, whenever you take communion, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in celebrating communion, this little mini meal, which we're going to eat together in a second, we're teaching one another, we're proclaiming the gospel, silently yelling the good news about Jesus to one another. And so take some time now to quietly reflect and we'll grab some bread and juice in a minute. Um, as we do that, these guys will uh, play an item that will help us reflect on the fact that Jesus is coming back. Uh, now, if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, um, then take this time to reflect on these things. You don't need to participate in communion with us, but instead take some time to think and reflect. Um, uh, but for the rest of us, I'd love to invite you to come up and grab some bread and juice off the tables down the front and up the back there as well. And quietly come grab bread and juice and then head back to your seat.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he taught his followers to to do communion together. And he said that this bread is my body broken for you. 